Hi everybody, I'm Jeannie Faulkner. Thanks for joining us here on Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. This is where we have smart conversations about pregnancy, parenting, motherhood, feminism, prenatal care, childbirth, health care, a whole lot of stuff. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, which is a Penguin Random House publication that was, uh, it came out last summer. And this podcast is my way of keeping that conversation going. I hope everybody listening here in the United States had a really, really great 4th of July. I have to say, mine was just about the quietest I've had in decades. This is the first year where we didn't have kids who wanted to go see the fireworks. We didn't have anybody to buy sparklers for. We just lit a little fire in our chiminea and barbecued some salmon and corn and spent the evening trying to keep our dogs from losing their damn minds as neighbors blew shit up in their driveways. (laughs) All in all, it wasn't too bad. And that's not a bad way to spend a holiday, is it? The dogs are fine, by the way. Thank you for asking. My Scottish Terrier isn't really bothered by fireworks at all. Sturdy stuff, that guy. My Chihuahua Pug Mix was somewhat concerned, and he didn't mind one bit when we tucked him into his little kennel for the evening. My daughter's dog is a sweet little golden retriever, and he showed, as she put it, some healthy concern about all the explosions and about why the humans in the house weren't a little more freaked out. She tucked him into his kennel with his thunder vest on, put a fan on high next to him, and piped in Chopin radio. He had the spa treatment and apparently did fine too. Good to get past that from the doggy's perspective, right? Um, let's see. What do we want to talk about today? Um, I got an email this week from another woman who had C-section questions. We're on a roll here lately talking about the C-section, and I'm not surprised. You know, more than a third of all um, births here in the United States are by C-section. And, you know, it's not surprising that women have some questions about that. Um, anyways, this listener emailed, um, she wants to have a VBAC, but she has extenuating circumstances. Um, I think she's got a pretty interesting story here, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. Hello, my name is Denise. I have had two C-sections, and the reason for the second one was a precaution because of my first. The main issue was my first and all the complications I had with her. I had an emergency cerclage placed at 23 weeks because I found out my cervix was 98% effaced and was funneling or shortening. I'm not sure how to word that. Oh, you did fine, Denise. That's exactly how I would have worded it. I'll explain a little more about that in a bit. Um, after that, I developed an infection in my uterus, which caused it to contract and made the doctors believe I was in labor. There were a lot of unanswered questions I had, and I'm very concerned because I feel like my ability to have a child vaginally has been taken away. I feel like that is the worst possible feeling in the world, not being able to bear your own children. What ultimately went wrong was that I was cut too high in the uterus because the baby was early, 33 weeks, resulting that my uterus wasn't the size it was supposed to be when they cut. I wasn't actually in labor and my uterus was infected. So they treated it backwards, which snowballed downhill from there. 
Is it true that my chances of having a natural birth are completely a dream I will forever have? Thank you, Denise. Oh my goodness, that's a whole lot of issues wrapped into one email. Um, And I'll sort of talk it through with you, Denise. But before I do that, I want you guys to know that this is not uh, medical advice that I want you to follow. It's just more information for you to make your own decisions. So, um, Denise has already had two C-sections, and it sounds like her first pregnancy was a bit of a nightmare, had a C-section, and then they did the second C-section because that's just the way it goes these days for most women. Um, She mentions that she had an emergency cerclage placed at 23 weeks. So, a cerclage is, um, it's a minor surgical procedure where an obstetrician essentially stitches the cervix shut. And it's a procedure that um, we can do for women who have a tendency to deliver early or dilate early. Um, You know, there's certain circumstances where we can simply close the cervix so that the baby doesn't deliver prematurely. funneling or shortening. That's a pretty good description of, of what happens with the cervix. Uh, but it sounds like after that you got a uterine infection and that led to you know your early delivery at 33 weeks. Now ultimately it sounds like your question is now that you've had two c-sections and the incisions were cut in somewhat of an irregular site can you have a VBAC now or is that forever a dream? Well, I don't know. And I and I wish that I could say, you know, one way or the other for you, Denise, that yeah, you absolutely need another C-section or no, you absolutely can have a VBAC. But I really don't know. Um, it does seem like you have some extenuating circumstances. What I would do in this situation is I wouldn't um, give up the dream of having a natural birth, but I would definitely consult with somebody, a midwife or an obstetrician who does do vaginal births after cesarean. It sounds like the obstetrician that you're seeing right now doesn't do them or doesn't think it's a good idea in your case. So go get another opinion. That doesn't mean you need to sign up for care with another practitioner, but you can go get a consultation and say, Here's my story. Here's where my scar is. Here's what happened to me. What do you think is the safest way for me to proceed? Now, if they say, you know what, you've got a weird scar and I think that you should have another C-section. Well, then you've got a second opinion that corroborates what your doctor said in the first place. But if they say, you know what, your scar is in a perfectly fine place and I think that having a vaginal birth is a really good option for you. Well, then... You've got a really different opinion there, and that's a direction that you might want to follow. Whenever you're in a situation like this, all you can do is keep asking questions and getting information, and then you talk about it with your provider, with your partner, with your family. You talk it through with the people that you trust, and then you go with your gut. You go with what feels like the sanest, safest, most common sense way to proceed. Now, sometimes that way is a C-section and excellent that we have those options. I don't think 
that, you know, the worst possible feeling is not being able to have a vaginal birth. I think that it's a great option for the majority of women. And in every circumstance where that is the way that you can go, I support it. But sometimes women need C-sections. And that doesn't mean that anything's been taken away from them. That doesn't mean that they've been, you know, sabotaged. It just means that's the option that they needed for a healthy birth. Um, So this isn't a, you know, yes or no definite answer. What it is, Denise, is I'm going to encourage you to get more information. Ask for more opinions. You need to... Get those opinions from medical professionals who can look at your chart, your surgical records, hear your story, um, and then go with your gut, hun. I wish you well. I hope that you have a really, really lovely birth. Okay, so this week, I want to get into a really interesting conversation with a guy who's changing the way the world talks about hunger. But first, a reminder that Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is looking for sponsors and donations to help us keep the lights on over here. You can get a hold of me at gene at genefaulkner.com or go to my website at genefaulkner.com and hit that donate button. And obviously, if you're pregnant, thinking about getting pregnant, know somebody who's pregnant, or just like supporting authors, go buy the book, will ya? Common Sense Pregnancy. Penguin Random House Publication 2015. It's at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and your local bookstore. So, done. Done with all that. Let's get into it today. My guest today is Roger Thoreau. He is a journalist, author, and a father. He's written for some huge publications about huge global events, and his most recent book is called The First Thousand Days. It's about the time frame from conception to a child's second year and the difference nutrition makes during that time for a mother's health and for the entire life of the child. Let me give Roger a call. Hello. Hi, Roger. It's Jeannie. Hey, Jeannie, how are you? I am well. How are you? Excellent. Nice day in Washington, D.C. All right. I was just going to say, where are you? You're in, in Washington, D.C. I'm in our nation's capital. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not your hometown. What are you doing there? Yes, I'm originally from Crystal Lake, Illinois, in northwest Illinois, northwest of Chicago, mm-hmm. northern Illinois. And uh, uh, But here, yeah, I'm a senior fellow with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, um, which should locate me in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm based here. There's a couple of us uh, from the council uh, here in Washington. Uh, and moved here, I guess, coming up on three years ago uh, to locate myself as a better place for the reporting of the uh, first thousand days uh, book. Well, I think think what I should do, Roger, is I should go ahead and read your um, really good bio, and then I'm going to ask you a hard question. You ready? Fine. Okay. Um, Roger Thoreau joined the Chicago Council on Global Affairs as Senior Fellow for Global Food and Agriculture in January 2010, after three decades at the Wall Street Journal. For 20 years, he served as a journal foreign correspondent based in Europe and Africa. His coverage of global affairs spanned the Cold War, the reunification of Germany, the release of Nelson Mandela, the end of apartheid, the wars in the former Yugoslavia, 
and the humanitarian crisis of the first decade of this century, along with 10 Olympic Games. Whew. Yes. In tw- 2003, he and journal colleague Scott Kilman wrote a series of stories on famine in Africa that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in international reporting. Thoreau and Kilman are authors of the book Enough, Why the World's Poorest Starve in an Age of Plenty. In 2009, they were awarded Action Against Hunger's Humanitarian Award. In May 2012, Thoreau published his second book, The Last Hunger Season, A Year in an African Farm Community on the Brink of Change. His new book, The First Thousand Days, was published in May this year, and that's what we're going to be talking about. But now, here's the hard question. Now that I have read your your bio, let me hear you answer the question, who are you and what do you do? I am a journalist, above all. Um, I Right now I write books, um, long time uh, writing for the Wall Street Journal, 30 years, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, the daily journalism, most of it is a foreign correspondent. Um, and yeah, that had all the excitement and drama of, of, of daily journalism, uh, keeping up with, with what was in the news and particularly what was happening where I was abroad. Not that I was writing stuff every day, uh, as with the journal, uh, working on uh, longer, long, more long-form uh, feature stories. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times from where I was, um, but yeah, in 2010, beginning of 2010, end of 2009, decided it was a nice round 30, 30 years um, at the journal. Had come out with the first book, uh, enough, as you said, mm-hmm. and figured I needed to. It was about kind of how we brought hunger with us into the 21st century. I was finding that was really the passion and motivating force of my uh, uh, journalism. I wanted to continue writing about that, really liked writing uh, the book, uh, being able to take time, uh, uh, follow people uh, over time. And so that's when I decided to to leave the paper, uh, join the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, uh, not as kind of a typical... uh, uh, analyst or think tank person, but to continue still writing as uh, as a journalist. And now I figure that I'm pract- I'm a journalist, but I'm practicing long, long form journalism. Or you've heard of the slow food movement. This is kind yeah. of the slow the slow journalism uh, movement. <laughs> That's what um, we call books, right? <laughs> yeah, books. And t- well, yeah, but particularly in these books, a non non fiction uh, narrative uh, books. That so in 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 the previous book, in the last hunger season, followed some. Uh, four smallholder farm families in in uh, western Kenya uh, for the course of the year. So there the reporting went on for years. I followed them uh, through their lives, uh, then some time to write the book. And then then for the last for the for the first thousand days, figured, okay, well, I did it for a year. I'll expand it to almost three years. So a thousand days, and then followed these moms and children in various parts of the world through the thousand days. And so that then becomes, yeah, slower, slower, or longer, longer form uh, journalism of then the book coming at the, as, at the fruition then of all this time of reporting and following these people. And, um, you know, just a minute or so ago, you, you were talking a little bit about your family. Tell right. me a little bit about that part of who you are and what you do. Yeah, my wife is Anne. Uh, she's from Ireland. Met her when I was based in uh, Bonn, West Germany, for the Wall Street Journal. She was uh, in Brussels. She's a translator in uh, French and German, uh, and then has acquired other languages. One of these Europeans that really acquires uh, languages. And 
she was also working at the Wall Street Journal Europe, which had just set up. I was working for the flagship paper, uh, the Motherload, uh, the mothership in in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it was kind of through that that uh, uh, we met in in Brussels. And uh, I figured I would uh, uh, certainly married above my my Latin life or above my station, <laughs> and acquiring uh, uh, languages uh, in the process, which turned out to be very beneficial. Uh, a foreign correspondent and uh, and very capable and expert in that uh, in a field. So, are you saying that by marrying above your station, you actually became better at acquiring languages? A little bit, yeah. And then also somebody who's uh, uh, you know able to work on stories uh, together, and then certainly on these books, uh, as it then it's then turned out, uh, and kind of being my my. you know, both someone coming along on the book and my first editor, my first reader of the of the books, but then also for the for the first thousand days, uh, my photographer uh, and videographer, and then also uh, translator. Uh, more my my better eyes uh, on the ground. Oh, that uh, just seems like an ideal assignment to <clears throat> to do that kind of travel and exploration and research and writing, but also to be able to have your most trusted companion with you. Precisely, and it's, I think it's worked out really, uh, really well, and it's, it's it, um, uh, something that uh, we both love, traveling, uh, you know, doing together, uh, following these, these stories, the storytelling mm-hmm. of it. So, yeah, it's been a great, uh, great partnership in, in more ways than one. And then we have two children. They were both born in Vienna when we were based in, in, uh, in Vienna during my, our time overseas with the Wall Street Journal. Um, and they're now uh, 22 and 24 All right. Uh, so they're out of out of college. Well, Ashlyn just finishing up her her master's in uh, uh, global health at the London School of Economics. Just now writing her dissertation, and then uh, in, in global health and international health at, at, at LSE, as I said. And then uh, Brian has been working at the uh, Jesuit Volunteer Corps uh, in the Northwest. So he's, you told me that he's going to Alaska. What do you do as a Jesuit, part of the Jesuit Volunteer Corps in Alaska? Uh, social work. Okay. Uh, he'll be doing, he was, the last year he was in Montana, mm-hmm. uh, very, very uh, northern part of Montana, uh, teaching school uh, at, uh, uh, at, on the Fort Belknap uh, Indian Reservation, mm-hmm. uh, and was teaching first grade uh, there. And that had never talked before, so that was a great experience. Um, and that was for a year, and then uh, now he's then signed up for another year, and he'll be in uh, uh, Alaska as uh, doing uh, social work. Wow. All right. He'll find out more about that when he gets there. Apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, eh? No, yeah, I think in, t- in terms of uh, uh, these types of, of interests, so that's, that's great. Yeah, it is. So let's talk about the books. Uh, specifically the the newest one. You told me in an earlier conversation that we had that your new book is the third in your Real Life Hunger series. So you talked a little bit about that a minute or so ago, but tell me what that means. Yeah, so these three books, I I look at them as, as I call them my Real Hunger Games trilogy, um, that uh, hopefully uh, that would ring uh, particular interest with millennials and people who grew up with uh, the Hunger Games uh, trilogy, the books, the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the the mania over those over that series. Team Pe- uh, Peta, team the other guy, team Katniss. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, but but 
obviously in my books, uh, it's about uh, the real hunger, uh, one of the great challenges uh, that we're facing in the world, uh, one of our great challenges of of this new millennium of the 21st century, ending hunger and ending malnutrition, uh, which I think is is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, inequities um, in the world today, a world of such uh, abundance of, 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 you know, if you think of all the the advancements that we made up to this stage in uh, kind of our human capabilities, uh, in our scientific advances, technological advances, all the communications capabilities that we have at our fingertips uh, these days, uh, but yet we still have this this uh, hunger problem that, in certain in some 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 ways, is is getting worse. I mean, we have more than half the people on our planet. Of of you know, seven and a half million or whatever we're at billion of uh, whatever we're at now, uh, are malnourished in some way. They're either chronically malnourished, so it is daily grind of of scraping together enough food, access to food, affording enough food, enough calories to survive. So the UN organizations, uh, others that are are following this, they figure that may be eight hundred million uh, people that are chronically hungry. Then they figure there's another one and a half or two billion people that are micronutrient deficient, uh, which they call uh, a hidden hunger, that you wouldn't necessarily know it by looking at the children or the adults. They're not in kind of the, the emaciated state of what we, what we associate with starvation or, or hunger crises that we unfortunately see all too often. Uh, but they're still malnourished in that they're not getting the proper nutrients for, to fuel uh, the healthy uh, growth and development physically, mentally, uh, the strength of the immune system, the ability to ward off chronic diseases and, and, and lead a healthy life. And then there's another one and a half or two billion people that they figure that are overweight um, or obese, which is the other side of, of, of malnutrition. So if you add all that together, it's more than kind of half of the, of, of, of about half or more than half of the people uh, on our planet today. So globalization's gone big, it's gone global. Uh, almost every country in the world is, is impacted by it in some way. And yet we just don't know how to feed our, feed our people. We don't know how to do it yet. We have countries yep. where there's way, way, way too much. We have parts of the country where it appears there's too much, but in fact there's lack. And then there are parts of the world that are clearly without. Absolutely. I th- and I think these are, are, are things that should really outrage us. So they're kind of outrages of our, of our time. You know, I kind of have my, my journalistic mantra is outrage and inspire. Mm-hmm. Uh, my website, outrageandinspire.org, that's embedded or, or kind of included with the, the Chicago Council uh, websites. Uh, outrage and inspire, kind of this outrage that we brought hunger with us into the 21st century. And then as part of that, and, and I tried to explore this then, both Wall Street Journal and then more um, in-depth uh, and and very narrative and focusing on people um, in the writing of the books. One of the great ironies um, of the world, or cruelest ironies, is that the hungriest people in the world are, are farmers and smallholder farmers, uh, people that get up every day to grow food uh, throughout the developing world, but often they don't have the access to the essential elements of farming, kind of, you know, a, a decent decent seed or, or, or you know reasonable quality seed, just microdosing levels of fertilizer, um, extension advice, um, storage capability, and the financing to afford it all that they just don't have access to. So their yields are very low. Their harvests are are meager, and so they plunge into this this hunger uh, season 
And that's true every, for every. all farmers, but especially for women farmers who yeah, precisely. make up a, a significant chunk of small shareholder farmers, like a lot, like is it yes. 70%? Yep, you're absolutely right. Yeah, seventy percent upwards in in some places, in some regions, in some countries of of, of Africa and also in Asia, elsewhere in the developing world. Um, and so and so those so they were the, the the very people that I then wrote about in the the last hunger season book. And what I learned there is that so the, the deep because all the families had 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 children of the four families that I was following in particular. Uh, there were children in each of them. The, the, the women were also then the smallholder farmers are, are mainly responsible for, for the subsistence farming or growing the food that, then, that the family itself would, would consume. Uh, that was kind of part of their, you know, what, what is figured. This is the, the kind of the task of the, of the women on these small, on, on, in, in these, these uh, small homesteads. Um, and they were feeling that they were failing on two fronts. One is farmers because they weren't growing enough food to feed their families throughout the year. And two, they were feeling that they were failing as mothers because they were raising malnourished kids. And one of those moms, uh, Sapor in, in Western Kenya, it was through her that I learned that the deepest form of misery in the, the, this period of profound deprivation of the hunger season, the deepest form of misery is to be a mother unable to silence the crying of, uh, of a hungry child. I can't uh, even imagine. Right, and that, and that, it's horrible. Oh yes, yes, often because what her, her her youngest son, uh, little David, he's like two and three in the course of the two and three years old in the course of the book, was manifestly malnourished, kind of with a distended belly and and the mottled hair. He had a constant cough, and so his cough was almost like the bell on a cat or or the bell on a cow mm -hmm. that you could figure out where David was by by hearing him cough. So even though you could, you might not see him somewhere but you'd hear a cough and oh he's out he's out in the field or he's up he's up by the rocks or something mm -hmm. or he's on the pathway um and so uh so yeah that was uh, uh very uh difficult kind of to to watch and to see them kind of go through their their year but then also to see here's the improvements that come into their lives and what these smallholder farmers their power and potential and these women farmers have the ability to do uh, when these essential elements of farming through agricultural development come into their lives. So they have uh, access to financing through microfinancing or microloans to afford uh, the seeds the, the, that they need, you know, the, the proper seeds for their soil conditions, for the weather conditions, for their elevation. The little microdosing of fertilizer, which is very small amounts per, per plant. Uh, the extension advice, the storage capabilities, the access to markets. So Sapporo then, just in one season, she went from, from harvesting just 200 kilogram bags of maize, corn, to 20. So she had this tenfold increase in, in her income, in essence. And that was a tremendous increase in, in that family's uh, wealth. And then you could see um, the transformation that then as she was able to feed her children uh, better, the transformation in David and how he then, um, by the end of the year and then the next year and the subsequent years and times that I had seen him, you know, his improvements, their improvements, their house uh, that they were living in, now being able to afford uh, to feed the family throughout the year, but then having a surplus that they can, you know, sell some to afford malaria medication or whatever other uh, uh, health care uh, they might need to improve their house, to have the fees, to send their kids to school. So all this really helps. So you can see by through agriculture development, uh, particularly in these areas where the women do the, the most of the farming, 
what empowerment that is for these for these moms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead of feeling as feeling as failures on two fronts, now they're now they have this this success that they're really that they're really proud of. And so I have a couple of photos of of Sapor and her and her children or three of her children uh, at the be- at, at, at the beginning when I first met them and they're already in their hunger season and they're they're you can see their uh, the despair the the frustration kind of the hopelessness. Uh, the, the kids are, are kind of, you know, getting ever more, they're, they're thin, they're like almost stick figures mm-hmm. wearing, wearing, you know, shabby clothes. Uh, and then 18 months later or something, when, when I have another picture of them, uh, or 14 months later, uh, you can see how smiling and proud uh, support is of her children because they're doing better. They're now in school. Um uh, all so, the time, instead of having to come back and forth for some money for for, for, for just a, the, the the little tiny tiny fees that will keep them in school uh, through the years, that they would even have that amount of money uh, to be able to to pay. And so then you see this kind of pride that she has as a as a mom and as a farmer that now look what I'm able to accomplish. So the the premise of the first thousand days that that title being that it's a thousand days more or less from conception to a child's second birthday. And you're talking about, you know, the transformation you saw in little David after his birth. But the first thousand days is, imagine the transformations that would take place if proper nutrition was part of every mother's pregnancy. And um, so let's talk a little bit about that. And I I kind of want to separate it into um, a couple of different ideas. One is the transformation that you see benefiting the child, but then I really want to talk about what does that do for the woman? What right. does it do, not in reflection of her child, but for herself? Yeah, those are those are really good questions. And so this experience, in, while reporting the, the, the previous book, The Last Hunger Season with Sephora, um, her son, her youngest child, uh, the other moms there, that then had me thinking, okay, if he's in this situation now at two, three years old and is malnourished, what's that going to mean for the rest of his life? What if he had gotten off to a better start in life if they weren't plunging into this hunger season every year? And they had not only enough food to eat, but then the proper nutrition in that food, so the nutritious food that they need. So that then got me thinking of, okay, what should my next book be? And people were starting to talk about this thousand days period, uh, the importance of nutrition in that time. And I said, okay, that's what I'll, I'll focus on. And yeah, so it's a thousand days from the time a woman becomes pregnant to the second birthday of the child. And these nutrients, um, are so important. So nutrition then becoming that you see if, if, if one considers, and I do, that this period, this, this, these first thousand days, as the most the, the, the most important period of, of individual human development. It's in that time where the foundation for uh, good physical growth is, for cognitive growth. That's the time when the brain is growing most rapidly and most expansively. Uh, it sets the stage for uh, a, a, a strong immune system uh, throughout life. It's in that time where the propensity for chronic, chronic diseases later in life already starts forming. So proper nutrition then will basically kind of reduce the, the, the propensity or the likelihood for those um, in, in a lot of cases later in life. And so it's this, it's this extremely important time of setting the stage for... Uh, 
good performance in, in, in schools, the ability to learn uh, better once they get to school, uh, the ability to be more productive than in jobs later in life. Uh, there's studies over time that then show that, that children who have been properly nourished in that time may earn 20 to 40 percent more as they're in, 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 in income when they're, when they're working later in life as opposed to uh, children who are, who are not properly nourished. So uh, children that are stunted or malnourished children then become stunted uh, adults. And it's, it's, it's in that time that in the thousand days through malnourishment uh, and, and this micronutrient uh, deficiency that stunting sets in both physical stunting, cognitive stunting, or many times both in, 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 in a child in the same body. And I look at stunting as basically a life sentence of underachievement or underperformance. That, that this child, because of, of stunted development, again, physically, cognitively, uh, that is something they're going to take with them through life. It's, 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 this, it's this physical, this developmental cost, but then there's this economic cost to it for the family uh, and for the individual uh, that they're going to bear with, with higher health care costs, lower education, just lower productivity um, throughout life. And that the ripples from this stunting of a stunted child then roll through society. So it's like you, you, you cast a, toss a, a pebble into a placid pond and then all these ripples then form. Uh, there's the impact on the individual, as I was talking about, on the family. It makes their climb out of poverty that much steeper if you have children that are that are lower wage earners uh, later in life and, and higher uh, health care costs. The, the, the community. Yeah. Uh, it's then, an the, entire the, generations with stunted the, potential. Yeah, exactly. The entire generation. The, 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 the country. I mean, countries that have a high number of, of malnourished children, say 30% of their kids being malnourished, 20, 30, 40% of their children being malnourished and stunted, their own economic analysis are now showing that that, that can cost the equivalent of anywhere between 5 and 10 or 15% of their gross domestic product uh, every year. Africa, Asia, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, their calculations are that for those regions, they're set back the equivalent of, of 11%. Uh, equivalent of GDP uh, every year, and then for the, the the final ripple, then for the big global economy, is that there's there's this uh, lower economic activity through all of this when you add it up through the through the regions and the countries, uh, and everything, and the accumulation of that may cost a global economy several trillion dollars uh, a year, and then as I say, I think kind of the the the, the biggest cost. So those are huge numbers, but then the biggest cost. Maybe this cost that's unmeasurable, the, the, this, the, you know, uh, uh, an idea you know, not formed, uh, a cure not discovered, uh, a horizon not explored, a technology uh, not invented, uh, a cure not discovered, uh, a, a, book, a book not written, you know. Yeah, um, that's my favorite um, concept right. here because so often those of us that work in write and development we tend to skew our results or our perceptions as to, you know, what the numbers say, what the economic development will, will you know, th that's how we measure things is in terms of the, the monetary and um, the numbers perspective. But what it really comes down to is what you're talking about. If we're going to eradicate poverty in our time, it's going to be because of the brilliant ideas that come from children and parents that are better nourished. 
Exactly. And so if you think about it, and so kind of as I, as I kind of explore the, the, the growing ripples from the impact of, one, of, a, of a stunted child, it then leads us to, what you, as you're talking about, that what might a child have contributed to the world were they not stunted? A lost chance of, 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 of greatness for one child becomes a lost chance for all of us because who knows what that child might have contributed. So there you see that a stunted child anywhere in the world becomes a stunted child everywhere. And that's why we need to be, be so concerned about uh, these first thousand days, the, the, the mother's health, her nutrition, the environment, the hygiene, uh, the sanitation, uh, the infrastructure, the the the, the health that the healthcare system, what the healthcare, both in her prenatal checkups, or the the availability of it, the affordability of it, the condition of the clinics and the birthing birthing centers where they go, the cleanliness of the water, the the sanitation, all that then is so important in these in these thousand days. So while the mother's pregnant, and then obviously when she's then. Uh, breastfeeding, and then during the, comp- the, the period of complementary feeding, when the child starts eating other, other foods at, at you know four, five, six, seven months um, of life, that the, the the nutrition then is this accelerant of this of this growth uh, that then becomes uh, so vital for all of us. So, let's, reflecting back on the the mother's experience, then, if we just you know we take the kid out of the equation and we simply focus on what would happen if all of a sudden there was such a shift in perception as to the value of women that we just started nourishing them in all of the ways that you just mentioned, including education and sanitation and all of that? What kind of, I mean, we're talking about a major shift in gender equity. Yes. What what would that do for women? What would that do for mothers as women themselves rather than just as, you know, having the kid? Yeah, exactly. And then I mean, so as you're talking about about this, and and, and so then this move for uh, healthier moms during pregnancy, but then even before that, so for for adolescent girls and girls and young women as they're approaching childbearing years, to look after their health to make sure they have the access uh, to the to the nutrients, that's then a kind of a, rev- a fundamental and revolutionary uh, change, because then. It, it'll it, it will basically stop this generational cycle of of stunted malnourished mothers or malnourished mothers giving birth to underweight children who were then in in the first two or three years of life then are stunted with some of their development markers mm-hmm. stunted children become stunted adults stunted girls then you know become stunted mothers who then are giving birth to malnourished or to underweight children again and they're, they're also you know that it leads pretty significantly to obstructed labor because yes. these poor stunted women have these teeny tiny little pelvic structures yes. that you know can't push through a normal baby. Exactly. Or and 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 again, if they're uh, malnourished in in the thousand days and early in life, so then their likelihood of of of, of their education, how long they're going to stay in school, what they're going to learn there. Uh, that then, you know, correlates, the lack of education correlates very uh, closely in a lot of places in the world to um, early marriage, early birth uh, by girls. And so that then kind of all then reinforces this and the problems that you, and the things that you're talking about with the problems of, of, of uh, uh, childbirth and obstructed labor, uh, of, 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 of mothers then, of young women, uh, 
giving birth and they're in a situation that they're not they're not prepared for it either um, you know with their social uh, surroundings and support systems or the the uh, financial uh, aspects of it so that's why it's really important that that the fathers um, the partners the boyfriends that everybody's involved kind of in these development uh, efforts the mothers-in-law uh, are, are really important in some parts of the world I guess in probably all parts of the world uh, the grandparents, all the caregivers, to basically have this knowledge that this time, the, the time of pregnancy, and even then during the, the, the time of adolescent girls and, and young women, this is a really important time for the future of your family, of your, of your offspring, of the next generation uh, coming up. So you have to make sure then that um, your wives, your girlfriends, uh, the girls, the women in your family, uh, are uh, properly nourished. That the money in 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 some. So I was following for the for the thousand days book uh, reporting was following moms and their children and their families uh, through the thousand days in India, Uganda, Guatemala, and Chicago. And you find so particularly there's passages with the moms in Guatemala. And I'm asking so like tell me what you go shopping for and are you, what kind of foods are you able to afford. And they're saying no with the incomes that their that their husbands have, and in the 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 small share of that that they give to their to their wives every week or every fifteen days or every month to go shopping, they kind of go through their list of what they can afford, and even if they're in these nutrition classes and they're learning about the fruits and the vegetables and the proteins and everything that they should be eating, and the dairy products and the cooking classes and how to properly cook for cook it. That knowledge that they're learning then is, is an empowerment for them that, yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do. This is great to know. But if they can't act on that because they don't have the money to afford those foods, then that, then that knowledge that they're getting, that they're craving, then becomes this added burden on them. We know what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to eat, how we should be preparing these things. But we just don't have the money or the access to be able to afford these things. So that then goes to the other members of the, of the family that... You know, make sure that 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 food is available, uh, is prioritized, and that particularly for the uh, for the mom. So in Guatemala and particularly in India, the women, the moms, are usually eating last, and they're eating least. So a number of times we'd see the moms in 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 India, and they might be squatting on the their veranda, and they're kind of scraping together uh, the food on their plate or out of their dishes. And then eating it, and it's it's there are solitary figures there, and it's because okay the rest of the family has already eaten, and so they're now scraping together what remains, and that's leftovers. That, that 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 the leftovers, whatever is left, then they're able to have, and then they're probably in their mind, oh we maybe need something for breakfast in the morning, so maybe I shouldn't eat all this, and I should I should keep some here. And many and of they, those women are the farmers that we started talking about earlier on. They grew the food, they harvest the food, they cook the food, they clean up after the meal, and they still eat last and eat least. Exactly, right. Yeah. And so, yeah. so, 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 so there's, there's so many kind of uh, traditions, uh, social, cultural norms, patterns that then are, are part of them breaking this generational uh, cycle of kind of stunting and malnutrition being, being perpetuated. So I'd like to, you know, we don't often get guys on the podcast. And when I do, especially okay. guys that have children, I'd love to just kind of get your reflections on um, 
what fatherhood has meant to you know your career and your life and I guess the first question is that how has being a father impacted what you write yeah that's a really good a really good question um it was so as I, I I guess I mentioned at the beginning, both our children were born when we were based in uh, Vienna uh, in Austria in the early nineties um, and what I was doing there I had been in South Africa, my wife and I for the for the five years uh, prior uh, it was the last gas years of apartheid, the release of nelson mandela the 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 the, the ostensible end of apartheid a new dispensation coming in. Um, and then we went to Vienna and to write about the democracy and blooming democracy and capitalism in Eastern Europe. Um, and shortly after we got there, then Yugoslavia started disintegrating very violently. And I was the closest person there at the Wall Street Journal. So I was, I was writing about that. Um, and then my wife became pregnant with our, with our son. And I was still doing some of that, but telling the editors, look, I don't really want to be doing this uh, uh, anymore, or with the frequency that I'm doing it, because it's more it's more dangerous. And at one stage, you know, my wife said, as I, I kind of took our flak jacket, my flak jacket, and put it in the back of our car, and you could drive from Vienna to Zagreb, Croatia, or other parts of where things were happening down there, four four and a half hour drive or something. And she says, you know, if you're going to a place where you need a flak jacket, you probably shouldn't be going. Yeah. <laughs> I said, yes, there's eminent truth to that. And so that all then started you know, in terms of the type of stories uh, that I would that I would cover, and then just my re, kind of my discussions with my editors, and they were very understanding about it at the at, at the Wall Street Journal, and so I think some of them, particularly on the foreign desk, had gone through the same the same things in their lives and with their families, and so it was okay. So then, uh, kind of scaling back, being in the middle of those things and 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 crisis and conflict, but then writing about humanitarian and development issues so that then became kind of the 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 shift in my my focus of reporting then um i think uh which then got me writing about uh hunger malnutrition issues uh uh the the ethiopian famine of 2003 the first great hunger crisis of of the the 21st century of our new millennium he was like, my goodness, what's what's wrong with us? What madness grips us that we've taken hunger with us into this, into this new century and this new millennium? So writing about uh, those issues, but yeah, as you said, very powerfully then, with small children and even as the as the children grow up, then being in those places and seeing children their age, seeing mothers in the conditions that they're giving birth or that they're pregnant in, and thinking. You know, my goodness, you go into some of the, the, the clinics where they give birth, and then and, and, and my wife and I kind of traveling together uh, a lot of times on the Thousand Days uh, reporting, kind of standing aghast at some of the, 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 the clinics that we would go into and say, babies are born here? And then the mom's telling us their stories. Yes, they'd give birth on, on, on the floor, laying on a, on a blood-stained uh, blanket or, or carpet. Uh, with no kind of the, the technology uh, that, that, that we would associate with. I mean, no proper blood pressure gauges, uh, no kind of emergency oxygen, no, no kind of you know, backup systems or something, no electricity. There was one midwife, and this was particularly then telling to my wife and I, and it's like, my goodness, imagine you know, then, then what, what we had and what was available to my wife as she was giving birth in, in Vienna. There was one midwife in Uganda 
who was then describing that the light of last resort, because they didn't have electricity, they had solar power, uh, and about you know nine ten o'clock at night or something, that would start flickering as the 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 power stored up through the day started to wane and the lights would start to flicker. I said, well, okay, when that happens, what do you do? And she said her light of last resort then is is that she delivers babies by the birth of a cell phone light. Right. And she demonstrated, she put it in her mouth, you know, kind of, kind of you know, bent down at the end of the table uh, to, receive the, to receive the child. She's just showing me this. There wasn't one being born at the time, fortunately. Uh, and, you know, she has the phone then in, in her mouth and she's biting down uh, on it to keep the light uh, lit. And you just see that, and you say, "My, my goodness!" It really puts things into into perspective. So I think then, then having, you know, children of our own, having gone, you know, uh, experienced that uh, with our two children, then to see these conditions and say, "Wow, these inequities in the world are really, you know, are really something. Uh, they're 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 deep. They're profound. Uh, they're they're." absurd they're they're obscene uh that we have these inequities and that that you know we need to uh, continue writing about these so my my writing my words Anne's photos uh hopefully that that presents a a a package or a picture then of people that will grab people to say that we really need to do something uh, about this so uh i think yeah having it's a great question having uh, a family and the and and the children and having had these experiences, it does I think inform your reporting uh, in 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 additional ways or it enriches it in a sense. Well, you and I have talked for a good long time now, and there's just a couple of more things I, I kind of want to you know, pick your mind a little bit more about um, raising kids, and then I'm just going to ask you one final question after that. Good. You get me started on some of these things, and I go on. So. I know. Well, hey, I'm happy well, to hear you. it. I'm happy to hear it. Um, so, I don't know if this is a question, but I bet it's amusing that you will um, relate to. We have children of similar ages. Mine range from 16 to 32. And um, my husband and I were reflecting on how the experiences of pregnancy and birth and the early years are very similar for most of us, um, you know, even universally, even though our, our circumstances are very different. But the, but the experiences themselves are pretty similar, yet they're each, having each child is entirely different because the children are different. And you aren't raising the same child four different times. You're raising, you know, for us, four different children at four different times in our life. Right. And I wondered about your, just what you think about that, how that's played out in your fatherhood. Uh, yeah, that the time, I mean, we were overseas, so when the children uh, were born, uh, I was, you know, traveling a lot at the stories, reflecting in my mind, should I be covering this type of, of story, kind of the time that I was away from home. But then as the kids got, got older, and so you're you're obviously experiencing things and through your through your children's eyes and seeing seeing the world again, but then through through their eyes and and the whole wonderment of that. But then, so as they got older, they could then uh, come with me uh, and 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 my wife uh, on some of my reporting trips. So what I started to do was actually 
I would tailor some trips to, well, when their vacations from, from school were. Because uh, after Vienna then, we were eventually then in, in Zurich, uh, Switzerland, for, what was it, six years, maybe a little longer. Uh, and at that stage, so our son was second grade to seventh grade, then our daughter first grade through sixth grade. And so at the age where, yeah, they're really discovering they're, they're in an international school with kids from all these different uh, countries in the world, and so I think it was a great thing then to be able for them to, to join me on some of the reporting trips. So I would kind of, at the beginning of the year, say, look at, okay, when are your school breaks? Uh, when are your times that, that we'd be able to travel as a family to, uh, you know, some places in Africa or Australia or some other places that I knew I'd be going to for, for stories? And then try to line that up. Uh, and so I think, I hope that was a, a, a good thing then for, uh, for our children to be able to... Uh, to experience um, those things, and so yeah, you just you 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 see then kind of as your kind of surroundings and circumstances change in the time that your children are growing, uh, kind of what you're able to bring to them uh, as parents or you know parenting uh, uh, abilities um, and perspective, and so I think that's that's kind of a um, a great thing if we're in the position to do that. But then I look back at, at, at like the families in the Thousand Days book in the last hunger season and just the context of their lives just being so different and kind of what it's like to, you know, be pregnant, give birth, raise a child in those uh, conditions. And there's, you know, what we might look at and say, wow, this is, is really poor, it's really depressing. Uh, you know, and it is in, in our context, well, in any context, but, you know, that's the lives that they have. There's, there's, they're making the best of it. Uh, there's moments of, of, of great joy, um, you know, and laughter and singing and all the things that families all over the world, uh, experience. But then you just think about, and, you know, it's something the the Bill and Melinda Gates talk about and kind of other people in the development world. This whole lottery of birth, uh, where you're born, when you're born, the circumstances into which you're born, wow, the impact that that has on the opportunities that you have uh, throughout life. And so that, I think, is always uh, really uh, uh, profound in my experiences uh, as, as we do this reporting. Well, you and yours and me and mine, we are the lucky ones. Absolutely, yeah. yes. So my last it's question. Good be, it's good to be... Good to be to be reminded of that, yeah. um, I think, often, both for ourselves as parents and then also, you know, our children, that this is, uh, uh, you know, you, you won the lottery of, of birth, basically, you know, where you were born in the circumstances. Right. No matter what we're going through, what we consider our hardships, there are people who would look at our lives as luxurious beyond compare. Exactly. Well put. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So my final question for you is one that you can answer as simply or profoundly as you choose. Where are you in your life as a dad? Uh, yeah, really good question. I guess, uh, uh, you know, in the stage of, the, of seeing our children, Brian and Ashling, uh, go forth post-college uh, and make their ways. And so the encouragement um, with that... Uh, and watching them do that and kind of the exhilaration, you know, and then also, but, but then also telling them that, look, we're not, you know, all of a sudden going to 
stop, you know, worrying about you or kind of asking questions about things, uh, you know, just because you've reached this age or, or this stage of your life. I guess that's something that the uh, parents uh, uh, always have and carry and carry with them. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean, you kind of look back and you figure, uh, uh, gee, you know, the times of going to the... Uh, you know the baseball games, or the or the swim meets, or the the piano uh, recitals, or the the plays in school, or things. Uh, that was great when we had it, uh, and now there's other fulfilling things uh, uh, that come along. So you kind of see. So it, it's it's really rewarding to see, uh, you know, kind of the lives and the people that they're uh, becoming, and then the potential of what they they can become and where they're their jobs and their careers uh, and their lives will will take them. Awesome. Well, Roger, it's been really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I think your um, your perspective and your insights are really valuable. And I'm hoping that listeners are going to hear what you have to say and rush right out to buy the new book, The First Thousand Days, which is everywhere. You can get it everywhere, right? Yes, Yeah. please. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. All right. Well, good to have you on the on the podcast, Roger. And we'll talk again. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for your interest. Yeah. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. My mama said. Mama said. I went walking the other day. Today's guest was Roger Thoreau, author of The First Thousand Days. You can learn more about Roger over at thechicagocouncil.org slash blog slash outrage and inspire. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Picture Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can learn more about me and my work at genefaulkner.com. Email me at gene at genefaulkner.com. Tweet me at genefaulkner. And come find our brand spanking new Facebook page for Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. You knew I'd get around to making one of those eventually, right? And folks, those donations are really appreciated. Even better, if you're a business who's looking to sponsor a rockin' hot podcast, email me and let's talk about it. Thanks for listening, everybody, and let's get together again next week. Someone will look at me.